Hi, everyone. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Dr. Jocelyn Lebo, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. So while eating disorders are often thought of as disorders of adolescence, in actuality, they impact adult patients across the lifespan. While many of the characteristics of these disorders are similar for pediatric versus adult patients, there are important differences in how a primary care provider should assess and treat these illnesses in adults. As with younger patients, the majority of adults report presenting to their primary care provider first with their eating concerns, and many never seek additional care. So primary care providers play an important role in identifying and managing eating disorders in adult patients. This episode is the seventh in our eating disorders edition focused on how primary care physicians can treat people with eating disorders. This episode will concentrate on adult eating disorders and best practices for assessing and treating these patients as a primary care provider. So today I'm extremely excited. We are joined by two of the leading experts in the field of adult eating disorder assessment and treatment. Uh, I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Carol Peterson, who is a clinical psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Minnesota, and Dr. Scott Crow, an adjunct professor of psychiatry at the University of Minnesota and vice president for psychiatry at Aconto. Thank you for joining us today, Scott and Carol. Thank you, Jocelyn. Pleasure. So selfishly, this is really exciting for me because I know nothing about treating adults. You guys are going to improve my skill set immensely. I guess starting right at the beginning, how do these patients present for a primary care provider? You know, we know the DSM diagnoses, but what should they be looking for? What walks into their office? Scott, what are some of your thoughts? Well, you made a very important point in your introduction, which is that people with eating disorders see primary care folks a lot. And that's typically where things do start out. Very unusual for somebody to come directly to us seeking eating disorders treatment. We know that healthcare utilization climbs a lot in the year or two prior to an eating disorder diagnosis. And that's almost all non-mental health utilization at first. So people will present in primary care with lots of different symptoms, but not for the most part reporting that they have an eating disorder. They come with various gastrointestinal symptoms with weakness, with lightheadedness, infertility concerns can bring people in at times. People often come in with changes in weight and that can be a presenting symptom as well. When they come in with those changes in weight, is that usually their concern or is that something that the primary care provider has to look for? That's a great question. Particularly for people who have binge eating, they will come in with concerns about gaining weight People with other eating disorder symptoms like restricting or purging often will come in with frustration about not losing weight, but you're absolutely right. Loss of weight is rarely the presenting complaint per se. It's something you may notice if you you see them and you look at where they're at in terms of weight now and versus the last time they were here, but that won't be the presenting complaint. Got it. And this is something, I think it's a hard balance with, with all the talk on the obesity, on obesity prevention, the obesity epidemic. When do you draw the line as a primary care provider? When do you stop high-fiving your patients for healthy habits and start becoming concerned? Yeah, it, that's also a great question. A lot of the people that we see who come in with weight loss started losing weight at a weight that often would be thought of as healthy. And that I think can be a, one clue. I think a second clue is the extent to which that's a, really a central consuming issue for them or something that's just one of a number of things that they're thinking about. And of course, the 
people that we work with, it's it's the uh, the main issue that they're thinking about a lot of the time. That's super helpful. Carol, any other thoughts, especially from the psychologist's perspective, how do these patients present in terms of their mood, in terms of their anxiety? What do you typically see? It's an excellent question. We see a lot of psychiatric comorbidity among people with eating disorders. And as Scott mentioned, oftentimes they'll be presenting in primary care, not so much because of eating disorder concerns, but because of significant rates of depression, anxiety. We see oftentimes struggles with, with drug and alcohol misuse. So oftentimes you're seeing people with eating disorders presenting in primary care for other kind of psychiatric concerns. One of the most alarming is that among different psychiatric diagnoses, eating disorders in adults actually is one of the diagnoses most associated with suicide risk. So oftentimes we'll see people who are who may not appear to be depressed, but often have very significant depression, including uh, suicidality. I think that's really, really helpful. And for the primary care provider, Carol, how would you recommend, you know, these people are coming in, maybe this is their concern, but probably not. There's maybe a 20 minute appointment. They're supposed to also get their vaccinations and their, you know, how can the primary care provider begin to assess this? What are sort of the highest yield questions that they can begin to ask? I think those fall into different categories. I mean, the first I think is behaviors. One of the things that we know about eating disorders is they can present across the BMI range. So just because someone may have a higher BMI doesn't necessarily mean that they're not engaging in extreme restrictive eating or purging behavior. So the first set of questions that are especially helpful to ask are about general eating patterns, but including in that, if there's experiences of loss of control or binge eating, which can be defined in different ways, but we know for our patients, they usually experience it as a sense that they can't stop once they start eating or control water how much they're eating. So asking about questions of loss control eating can be really helpful, as well as any sort of behaviors that may be engaged in in order to try to influence weight and shape. Purging behaviors, including self-induced vomiting, misuse of laxatives and diuretics. We also see fasting, which is different from intermittent fasting, you know, which is a popular uh, weight loss approach right now, where people are often go long periods of time without eating. And interestingly, back to your point about what's healthy and where does that line get crossed, we actually see polymatic exercise among individuals with eating disorders. They may engage in very free very intense exercise. They may be exercising when they're injured or when they're ill. So it can be helpful to ask specific concrete questions about exercise as well as eating. You know, when you think about high yield questions, I would also be curious about preoccupation with eating and weight and shape. One of the things that we're seeing from data and trying to determine someone with or without an eating disorder, we're really seeing that what characterizes an eating disorder is really very much the internal world, a sense of many minutes per hour being thinking about what have I eaten? What am I going to eat? Will I gain weight? What is my weight? How does this affect my shape? We also see frequent shape checking and weight checking. And this can be a, a really important question in determining the eating disorder and also potentially engaging people into treatment. I know that I see that a lot in my work, that that's the thing that bothers them. You know, it's, it's not that so much of their brain is taken up, so much of their thoughts are taken up. Exactly. Scott, do you have any sort of recommendations you'd have from a medical perspective in terms of how to assess? I think there are a couple of things to bear in mind. One is that this is unusual. It's different than much medical practice in that it's a spot where you often have to ask exactly the questions that Carol's talking about, but repeatedly, often at repeated visits to get a full picture of what's going on. 
a lot of medical complaints that bring people to primary care, you get a pretty clear picture right away, but there's somewhere it takes time. And this is definitely for reasons of being, as Carol said, fearful of what's going to happen to my weight, feeling shame or stigma or other reasons it takes some time to get full information. If you start to get a picture that somebody has significant restricting or binge eating or purging, there is some basic medical workup that you can start to do. Look, a basic metabolic profile and, and probably CBC. There are certain things to look for. We for sure look for uh, low potassium in people who have purging. That's actually a highly specific marker of purging. It's not, not very sensitive. About 20% of people who have purging will have low potassium, but it's very, very uncommon in otherwise healthy young adults who don't have purging to have that. For people with highly restrictive eating, you worry a lot about hypophosphatemia because low phosphorus is, is basically one of the main concerns that we have in regard to refeeding syndrome. That's something that needs to be followed carefully because many of the people that we work with with restriction have total body hypophosphatemia, but in the moment, a normal serum phosphorus when they're restricting. And so that can show up as people start to refeed. And that's, that's another particular thing to watch from a medical standpoint. You know, you mentioned that this is something where these return visits are going to be so important. What does that look like for primary care? What frequency should that look like? Healthy adults go to the doctor once a year, maybe. What would you recommend? I think it's a useful strategy to, if, if you have a real concern and you're pretty convinced that disordered eating is a problem, you're not really hearing directly about that from the patient. I think it's very reasonable to try to see them back even in just a couple of months because it's going to stretch out to a long period of time if it's something that can be addressed just once a year or something okay. like that. If it's a real concern, it's re worth seeing them back fairly frequently to kind of reassess where things are at. And so let's just say you've got a patient in your office, you've assessed, you're sure that this is an eating disorder. You know, in, in my work with kids, it's easy. I'm like, all right, we're just going to call your mom. We're going to get your mom in here. We're going to tell her and it's going to be great. With adults, that is not the case, obviously. And, and this is not always a diagnosis that's well received. Carol, how do you recommend providers sort of broach this topic? How do they go at this diagnosis? How do you give this feedback? It's an excellent question. And I think challenging for all of us in healthcare, but especially primary care, where we know primary care physicians can be so impactful and positive in helping engage people into treatment. But one of the things that I think is helpful to consider is that there are many reasons that our patients may be reluctant to talk about their eating disorders or um, share information. And, and the first is a lack of awareness that it may be a problem. We know that, as you mentioned, with children and adolescents, it's oftentimes concerned parents who bring them in. We know from a number of studies now that oftentimes with adults, they don't seek treatment for their eating disorder until it becomes much more impairing, either in work and school or in aspects of their life or their work. So oftentimes, I think understanding that some people may not be aware that their eating disorder is problematic 
We also see that people are really terrified about treatment, about changing, um, in some cases about forced treatment. And then we also see a lot of, of shame and concern about judgments from the physician. So any sort of approach that involves a collaborative, supportive, almost curious stance, we know can be very helpful. We do know, and we, we hear from our patients that, that getting concrete information presented in a compassionate way is really helpful. What's less likely to be helpful is alarmist. Now, obviously, if there's a medical concern, it is important to convey that, but that threats or suggesting you know, mortality risk that oftentimes threats, mortality risk, that oftentimes leads to more disengagement and avoidance. So I think being able to talk specifically about concrete behaviors, concrete concerns, and then questions, you know, how much time are you thinking about eating and weight? How much are you finding this maybe interfering in aspects of your life? Oftentimes, I think that can be helpful. What we hear from patients is oftentimes they're reluctant about treatment, but they are willing to get more information, whether that's labs, whether that's consulting with a dietitian, maybe seeing a therapist. Um, and sometimes that can be for a comorbid complaint like depression or anxiety. So uh, Scott made such an important point that often this is an ongoing collaborative experience. So sometimes it really is about kind of forming that connection and then working collaboratively toward more interventions. And Scott, what are your tricks? How do you get them to come back and see you in two months? What do you do? Well, I, I think what Carol says is right. The thing that really keeps them from coming back is if you really work to sort of alarm them, if you try to sort of strong arm people into treatment, work in less of a collaborative way. I think that that really makes them less likely to come back. It's, I think an important perspective to have on it is that getting people the treatment they need tends to be sort of a long running thing for a lot of people. And that's such a huge change from most medical care. In a lot of medical encounters, a problem is identified and we come up with a plan and we enact the plan. And this is different because even if the problem is clearly identified, much more than in other areas, the person who has the eating disorder may be really scared about certain aspects of trying to address it. So it doesn't necessarily lead promptly to come, you know, to adopting a plan like it does in other forms of treatment. And that's a huge change in mindset for the provider. And I think a, a really hard thing to bear in mind, but a critical thing to bear in mind is that this is essentially a long game for a lot of people. And it may not be a goal we reach in this visit today, but the goal is to get them to treatment. Do people get better from eating disorders? Is this treatable in adults? Yeah, these are highly treatable in adults. They're highly, highly treatable. And then people do get better. If they will go to treatment, if they're on board, what are you looking for? What should the PCP be trying to set up or look for? I think you want your patient to do treatment in a specialized setting. There are a lot of those in the United States. There are a lot of places in the United States where those aren't available at the same time. Somebody needs a full spectrum team with primary care, with therapy, with psychiatry, with a dietitian. And in a lot of areas, that may mean traveling to get treatment, but it's, it's really critical to try to help people access that specialized treatment. And when you say specialized treatment, you know, I think that we know access to care is hard and there are a million different things that get in the way of patients be, being able to get the perfect treatment. 
is something better than nothing. If you're in an area without many resources, if there's a psychologist there who maybe doesn't specialize this, but is that better than nothing? That's a great question. It can be. I think particularly if somebody has problems with binge eating disorder or mm -hmm. bulimia, mm -hmm. I think initiating treatment with a therapist that they can see locally, maybe considering medication treatment as an adjunct to that. I think that can be reasonable as a starting point if it can be closely monitored. For people who have anorexia nervosa, I think we tend to worry more about that and think of that more as a specialty treatment thing that needs to be handled in a more specialized setting. There's been really interesting research data for um, the group that Scott had mentioned, where you see medical and weight stability, more problems characterized by binge eating and potentially bulimia. There's a self-help manual that's been developed called Overcoming Binge Eating by Christopher Fairburn that was published in 2013. This manual has actually been used in a number of trials now, and where it looks like it works especially well is being delivered in a guided self-help manner. So this, you wouldn't need to necessarily have a specialist. What's most important is that there's accountability. So the person is working on these specific behaviors. The approach is cognitive behavioral, meaning you're targeting specific eating behaviors, weighing behaviors, shape checking behaviors, and looking at different kinds of thoughts and understanding around eating and weight and shape. And the data really suggests that some people do quite well with this, where they're working with these materials on their own, they're keeping track of their eating patterns, and they're checking in with someone who may not be a specialist. So I think, and especially with the predominance of telehealth now, that sometimes this is an option, again, only for individuals who are medically stable, whose eating problem is more characterized by binge eating or binge eating and purging in some cases. But I think, I think for some individuals, outpatients, support can be helpful. It's really a great point. And it's the kind of thing that I would think people are tend to be more willing to undertake as well. That's great to hear. Carol, what does the rest of the literature say as far as evidence-based treatments for adults with eating disorders? What are the standards? I think what we we're understanding, first of all, is the heterogeneity of eating disorders. I mean, that's one of the most complicated questions, right? This can include binge eating, purging, undereating, overeating. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so challenging to consider treatment. But what we're seeing across diagnosis is this cognitive behavioral approach often works well for people, not for everyone, but, but really trying to not so much look at the origins of the eating disorder, but really trying to target and help people kind of get unstuck from some of the, the patterns that they're in. So we know that cognitive behavioral therapy is often very helpful. Um, there's other approaches too used on an outpatient basis, including dialectical behavior therapy that tends to target more emotion regulation, which we know can be problematic for a lot of people with eating disorders. And then also approaches that look at the sort of the here and now and interpersonal relationships, certain of those are helpful. I'll also add that as Scott mentioned before, for some people, they may start out outpatient and find that it's really not helpful. And for others, a more comprehensive treatment is helpful. So I think what we understand as far as best practices is that higher level of care oftentimes is indicated. And this can be intensive outpatient. This can be partial program for some people, residential programs, but at times we'll need that higher level of intensity to really make an impact, especially when you're seeing medical instability. And what about medications, Scott? Are there medications? Well, yeah, there are. It's an interesting spot in the sense that meds are less important in eating disorders treatment than in other parts of psychiatric treatment, I would say. But there are a number of meds that can help bulimia symptoms. Antidepressants can be helpful. Uh, fluoxetine is actually FDA approved for that use. 
I would note that the particular thing we worry about in using meds for people who have bulimia nervosa is we stay away from bupropion because of a concern about seizure risk. Meds also can be helpful for people with binge eating disorder. Lizdex amphetamine is actually now FDA approved for that use, but there are a host of different meds that have been well studied and appear to be helpful. For anorexia nervosa, not so much. Medication trials for anorexia nervosa have been generally pretty disappointing, actually. So that's not a place for meds as much. Okay. The question that I asked the, the PEDS providers that I think is really helpful too for primary care providers to know, if you have a patient in treatment, how do you know if what they're getting is good? What are red flags that might suggest that they need a higher level of care, that, that this isn't the right provider or modality for them? Carol, what are some things that you would have the primary care provider look out for? Well, you know, I think for someone with anorexia nervosa, we really want to be seeing how much impact we're seeing on weight regain. That to me would be a, a critically important thing. Now, oftentimes that's the most challenging part for someone with anorexia nervosa to engage in. But I would say if you're seeing that someone has, is really struggling with weight restoration, that oftentimes is an indication for higher level of care. For some of the other kinds of eating disorder presentations we see, if you're not seeing significant improvement, especially in a cognitive behavioral approach in the first month to two months, oftentimes that's an indication for either an adjunctive intervention like medication or potentially for higher level of care. We find that some of the research studies suggest that we really see that people who are going to do well in cognitive behavioral therapy are kind of showing that improvement early on, especially for bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder. So that would be another thing that we would potentially look at. I've heard from a bunch of primary care providers who have been asked by different programs to help set a goal weight for their patient, you know, and for kids, we can use growth curves, but how do you do this for an adult? Yeah, it, that's a really good question. Oftentimes the programs will be setting goal weights, but they, they sometimes will ask. In adults, one of the things that people think about a lot now is the issue of weight suppression. Essentially, how much lower is someone's weight now than prior to the time that they had their eating disorder? That sometimes can help you understand what weight a person might need to be at to be at a, a more healthy, stable spot. It, perhaps tells you a little bit more about what, where their weight is inclined to be in the absence of eating disorder symptoms. And that at times can be a target weight to shoot for. So you're saying, and again, I think that this is a point of just a lot of debate and confusion for some patients, they may need to go back to their pre-morbid weight, their baseline weight, regardless of where that is. Potentially. Yeah, mm -hmm. potentially. But I think what you say is correct. This is one of the thorny questions that I'm not sure we have fully resolved in the okay. treatment as yet. This has been amazing. I want to thank you guys for joining me. We've been talking about the treatment of adult eating disorders with Dr. Scott Crow and Dr. Carol Peterson. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. So if you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And for everybody, stay healthy and see you next week. Mm -hmm.